um, our son Christopher. He's 25 now. When he was three years of age, uh, my sister Anya came up to visit us, and she lived in Dublin, and she hadn't really spent much time with, with Christopher, so she wanted to sit him down and talk to him and uh, see, in fact, uh, how well he could speak and how much he knew. So she began to ask him some questions, uh, questions about himself, and this went on for a little while, and Christopher was giving sort of one-word answers, yes, no. Eventually, Anya, uh, to try and expand his vocabulary a little bit, said to him, Christopher, isn't this wonderful? We're having a conversation. And in our family, we have never forget what Christopher said. This three-year-old looked at her and he said, you're asking me questions and I'm giving you the answers, but that's not a conversation. <laughs> I hope that one day the Lord doesn't say to me, Phelan, you spend a lifetime asking me questions and I give you all the answers. But we never had the conversation, the level of conversation, the level of communion that I wanted for us that we can have now. You see, I believe the church really, God wants us to have a level of conversation with him, a level of communion, not in the by and by, but now, that on the earth heaven would be seen today. That's always been his desire. Of all the people who walk the earth, the man, the person who said the most extraordinary things that had ever been spoken on this earth was Jesus Christ. He said the most extraordinary words. No other man ever said, uh, ever spoke to a man who'd been dead for four days and said, come forth. No other man ever spoke uh, to a cripple and said, all your sins have been forgiven, rise up. No one ever said of himself, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Yet on being asked about the things that he said, where these words came from, Jesus said a very interesting thing in John 12, 49 and 50. He said of his own words, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. So the first thing I want to say this morning is, Jesus spoke the most extraordinary words because he was hearing the most extraordinary words. And we're all gathered here this morning because we have a deep desire, obviously, to hear from God because despite being the generation of the church that has access to more earthly resources than any other generation of the church, we all know that no amount of finance no amount of experience, knowledge, or manpower can do what revelation from heaven can do. So what Jesus said to Peter about building the church is still as true today as it was then. Flesh and blood cannot give us the revelation, the extraordinary words, the words that manifest the kingdom of heaven on the earth. They can only come from our Father in heaven. Here's something, something else truly extraordinary that Jesus said. Uh, perhaps one of the things we find most difficult to accept. He said this in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he also will do, and greater works than these he shall do. Now, all that leads to this conclusion. If the source of the extraordinary works that Jesus did was the extraordinary words that he spoke, and if the source of the extraordinary words that he spoke was the extraordinary words he was hearing from heaven, then there can only be two possible reasons why the church today is largely not yet doing the extraordinary works of Jesus. Either our Father in heaven is not speaking extraordinary words to us, or we are not hearing the extraordinary words that he is speaking to us. And I think we can agree that it cannot be the first explanation because Jesus gave a promise to his disciples about the Holy Spirit continuing to speak to the church. Those words are recorded in John 16. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, but you cannot yet bear that. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
and he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. As scripture actually says that he will guide you into all the truth. Now that's interesting, just as an aside. Jesus said, I don't speak on my own. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, and he's not going to speak on his own. So it seems to be that in the Godhead, neither the Father, the Son, nor the Holy Spirit say or do anything on their own. They live and speak as an us. To God, life is not singular. It is found in communion and it is manifested in conversation. So what I want to show us this morning is that the Holy Spirit holds out to the church of each generation an extraordinary invite, an invitation to do nothing less than participate in the conversation of the Godhead by taking our place in the communion of the Godhead in Christ. We read the invitation this morning. Church, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is. Your life is. And no matter what your life is today, and it's been spoken about coming into this place perhaps, and maybe your life looks a total mess. But here's what heaven says. Your life is. You're a believer. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So for so long, as Christians, we have thought of our lives in terms of what I need to do, what I need to do for God. But to God, life is not an I. Life is not singular. It's found in communion. And it manifests through the conversation of that communion. Praise God. So we can see really from uh, this view of life, uh, and we can see it right from the very first chapter of the Bible. We know, of course, that Scripture says that God said, come, let us. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Later, when the Lord looked at Adam, he said, it's not good that he be alone. It's not good that he be alone. To God, life is not I. Life, and that's why when we come together, even as churches, assemblies, there is an, a higher level of life. There's a higher level of life. I've always been so blessed by um, stepping into the body of Christ in whatever context. And I believe that just as individuals, so as churches, we're going to discover that there's a higher level of functioning in together than there is, as it were, separately. So here is a way we can measure actually the maturity of a believer. We can say, does their life appear to have matured out of the I of the first Adam and into the us of the last Adam? Or in plainer English, we can say, is that Christian acting for the good of the body or for the good of himself? In the book, um, we're reading a, a wonderful book in church at the moment and some of the groups going through this book. And you probably heard of it. It's a book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And in that book, there's a wonderful illustration of the difference between these two mindsets. And I simply want to read this story. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm just going to read it, and the Holy Spirit, he'll comment on it. You'll know what I mean when I read this story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to the king, and he said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. So as the gardener turned to go, the king said to him, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours and I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this. And he said to himself, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give this king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came in before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned the heart of the man, and he said thank you, and took the horse and dismissed him. 
The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. When the church is brought into the revelation that we do indeed have everything we need in Christ, we'll stop giving worship to get. We'll stop serving to get. You see, sometimes when we talk about sonship, we talk about being in union with Christ, it sounds so almost like um, <clears throat> very high and grand and very high and mighty, you know? You, you, you seem to be very full of yourself. Jesus, the last lesson he gave to disciples, he washed their dirty feet. Do you know how he managed to wash dirty feet? I think it's John 13, 3 tells us. Knowing where he had come from and knowing where he was going and knowing that all things had been given into his hands, he wrapped a towel around his waist and got down and washed dirty feet. When it's no longer about self, then we can serve in a way that glorifies God. We can serve in communion with him the way he is. So we've ruled out the possibility then that our Father in heaven is no longer speaking extraordinary words to his church for every good father here loves to speak to their children. And besides, I think it's Romans eight sixteen assures us that the Holy Spirit is witnessing and testifying to our spirits that we are the children of God. So that leaves us with a question. If God is speaking, then why are we, the church, largely not hearing and so not speaking into this generation the extraordinary words that are coming from heaven? Words so extraordinary that they manifest or reveal the power of the kingdom of the sun to be greater than the kingdom of darkness. Here's a big clue, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, for he cannot understand them. Let me personalize this. Many, many times I should have prophesied. I should have spoken extraordinary words over very ordinary people or ordinary situations, but I did not. Because I could not accept, I could not get past how foolish those words sounded to me. As a natural man, I have matured to the point where I'm able to speak an earthly language fluently. No one laugh. I can speak English. A language called English. But as a spiritual man, that's as a natural man, as a spiritual man, I have not yet matured to the point where I'm able to speak a heavenly language fluently a language called foolish. You've heard of English. Have you heard of foolish? Unfortunately for me, 1 Corinthians one twenty one doesn't say God was well pleased through the Englishness of the message preached to save those who believe, but was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So question, what's hindering me as a believer from speaking fluent foolish from speaking words so extraordinary that the natural, logical, rational, earthly-minded, they sound foolish. The answer, I believe, is that words come from thoughts. If I am largely not speaking the words of God, it is because I'm largely not thinking the thoughts of God. You know, when I think about, there's a question we all have in our mind Sometimes we look at the, the ministry of Jesus. We look at the people who gathered around him. He seemed to attract the pub crowd and he seemed to repel the religious crowd. I heard someone say, isn't it amazing how in 2,000 years I've managed to reverse that? What do you think he was saying to them that drew them? What were the extraordinary things he was saying? I believe he was speaking to them as nobody had ever seen them before, even as they'd never seen themselves before. Now that's the sort of language that the Lord wants to release into his body to speak over this earth. A higher language to speak to people as they've never been spoken to before. The Holy Spirit does not just want to give us the words of God to pass on, uh, as if we're no more than some sort of divine courier service. The vision of God for his church is not a post office. We're not simply a heavenly vision of partial express to deliver God's mail. 
in being given the Holy Spirit, we have been given the mind of Christ that we may begin to think the thoughts of God. For it is from the thoughts of God that the words of God come. So what the Lord is doing in the church is, is a renewal of the thinking of the church. Your thinking and my thinking. This is how the Apostle Paul expressed this truth to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, that we may know the things which have been freely given to us by God, which things we also speak but not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. So I wanted to put it to you today that the reason we as the church are by and large not hearing and so not speaking into this generation the extraordinary words that are coming from heaven about them is because something is hindering us from thinking the thoughts that heaven thinks. Time to reread our opening verses. Colossians 3. Have a look again at this verse. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I believe that God's Spirit is speaking to us all the time. But even those of us in the world who are supposed to be able to recognize the voice, those of us in the church, are not fully taking in what he is saying because our minds, our thoughts are so set in the earthly realm so set in the natural realm that the thoughts of God's spirits, what heaven thinks, sounds too foolish to us. Simply sounds too foolish. Let me show you what I mean. Look at that verse again, verse 4. In verse 4, we have just read five little words that together communicate a truth that heaven thinks, that heaven believes, that heaven speaks, but that you will rarely hear spoken in church. Here are five words so extraordinary, so foolish, so above and beyond anything the earthly-minded church tends to think that they could only have come from heaven. Christ, who is our life. No wonder the Lord declared through the prophet Isaiah, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than than your thoughts. The truth, this truth, of the church's present union with Christ in God, this truth that today, today the church, yes, the division-ridden, earthly-minded, confused body of believers is in fact, in heaven's eyes, already hidden with Christ and God. That truth has remained for many of us for too many years too foreign, too alien, too out of this world a concept to think from and therefore to live from or to speak from. The reality of the kingdom of God, the reality of union, that Christ is our life, the church has not yet learned to converse in, to speak from, because our thoughts are not yet set there. Our minds have not yet been sufficiently rooted and established in Christ in our new kingdom in the heavenly realms. Now you may say to me, where's your evidence for that? Where is your evidence that what most of the church is thinking, is believing, what the Bible calls our hearts, is more rooted and grounded in the earthly realm than in the realm of the spirit? Where's your evidence? And my answer would be, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to the way we speak of each other, to each other, and about ourselves. We only have to listen to the way we speak across the church to hear how little our thoughts have ascended into the mind of Christ. Because by and large in the church, we speak to each other as if we were mere men. Do you remember that phrase Paul used with Corinthians? You're behaving like mere men. To God, life is not singular. It is found in communion and it is manifested in conversation, the conversation of the communion. 
And that conversation, the language of heaven, the language heaven thinks in is the language of union, for God is in communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, our problem, however, is that the preferred language of the church, the one we think in, is the one we've been reared in from Sunday school onwards. It is not the language of union. We speak the language of separation. Not the language of the new covenant, but the language of the old covenant. Not the heavenly language of the Holy Spirit, but the earthly language of religion is our first tongue. For most of our speaking is not of what God has done for man, so that man may be with God today. Rather, we continually speak of what man must do for God if he is to be with God, not today, but on the day he dies. So to such an earthly-minded church, would the Holy Spirit still not say what he spoke to the Corinthians through the Apostle Paul? We plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, the day of communion. From heaven's perspective, eternal life did not begin, does not begin on the day we die, but the day we are born again by His grace into communion with God. For to God, life is not singular, it's found in communion. Listen to how Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Communion. The earthly language of religion speaks to believers as if one day they will be with God. The heavenly language of the Spirit speaks to believers as if today they are hidden with Christ in God. Do you remember when we were children, very often, when we heard somebody speaking a foreign language for the first time, we used to burst out laughing. <laughs> it just sounded so foolish, you know. Amazing still today, you know, people go abroad, you know, and you hear people speaking and they, oh, they're not speaking English. There must be something wrong with them, you know. There must be some lesser species, you know. I mean, if, unless you're speaking English, you're not really real, are you? I mean, so children often, often would burst out laughing or treat people as if they were less than human simply because they weren't speaking English. But what they're saying only sounded foolish to us because they were speaking the language of another nation, another kingdom. You know, even when I was a student, and I was thinking about this during the week, when I was a student in university in London, I remember having an experience where it was almost like an epiphany. I began to see something I'd never seen before. And I was 18 at the time. Now, you may have seen this a long time before me, but I remember being struck by this. I couldn't believe it. I met a, a, a friend there, a man who was on the same course as me. His name was Phil Thomas. So can you, anybody guess what kingdom he might have been from? That's right, he was from the Kingdom of Wales. So we got to know each other over the first few weeks in university. We, used to, we had some good conversations. One day I was walking through the halls of residence where we both lived, and I heard Phil on the phone. Couldn't believe it. He was speaking a foreign language. <laughs> I, could, I, I stood there listening, thought, wow, you know? And then as I listened to him, this thought came to me that had never come to me before, and may, may have come to others, but to me, I, I just had to ask him. I waited till he was finished speaking, and I needed to ask him a question. I said, Phil, do you think in English, or do you think in Welsh? And you know, his answer astounded me. He said, although I speak English as fluently as you, I think in Welsh. I think in Welsh. Everyone thinks the thoughts of the kingdom they have been rooted and established in. As you received him, so walk in him, rooted, rooted and established in him as you have been instructed. This is part of being rooted and established, isn't it? I always get so blessed by being asked to speak. I spent a long time preparing to speak in this, and, and that was such a blessing to me because I've been rooted and established, you know? I'm actually beginning to believe some of the things I preach these days, you know? <laughs> That's what happens when you hang around the world, you know? Beautiful, isn't it? The thoughts the Holy Spirit thinks are from another kingdom, another dimension, a reality that sees the church from a heavenly perspective, that sees the church as hidden with Christ in God, that sees the life of the church as nothing less than Christ himself, who is our life. And because of those thoughts, 
The language of the Spirit of God is the language of union, the communion of Christ and his church. And I believe, church, that the Holy Spirit would have us to converse in this language because he would have us to learn to think in the language of the kingdom we as believers have been born from, the kingdom that we were translated into, in order that we begin to live from that kingdom and speak from that kingdom so that the kingdom of heaven would be manifested on the earth through the extraordinary words that the church is beginning to speak. I rejoice in all of us as assemblies growing in the message of the gospel of grace because we're beginning to say things that we've never said before. And that's why we're going to start to see things that we've never seen before. It's always been God's will, his will that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It's pretty basic. The work of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is to lead the church, you and I, up. Up into God's ascended perspective. His higher view on our lives. Up into the mind of Christ. Now Ephesians 4, and we're very familiar with this, tells us, that to nurture this growing up, this ascending of the body, the church, into the head, into Christ, into thinking as God thinks, that we may speak as God speaks, the Lord has placed in his body, wait for it, ascension ministries. We are told that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is all that about? It's about ascending, the raising up of the life of the church to think from, speak from, and live from heaven's perspective, the mind of Christ. That's what it's about. You know, in the natural, as a child grows, in the natural, as they ascend, uh, their perspective changes. And we rejoice as parents because we know that as they ascend, they're getting safer. You know, in our, in our house, I used to hate that stage when the children had grown to the level where they're a level with the sharp corner at the end of the table. And then they're going, oh God, you know, because they suddenly turn around, boom, oh. So as a parent, you rejoiced to see their eyes get above the level of the corner, the level of the table. You know, as ministers of the new covenant, we too must carry a burden to see believers ascend high enough in their thinking to grow up out of the earthly perspective and into a heavenly one about themselves and their lives. If they don't, you're going to be changing dirty nappies for a long time. To grow up out of an old covenant mindset of waiting for God to do something into a new covenant mindset of being together with God. In every situation. We sang it again this morning. Having a problem? Don't worry, the Lord says, I am with you. For many of us, it hasn't been an experience. It's been a, it's been a church cliche. But right the way through the scriptures, what's the answer? I am with you. Yes, you'll have trouble, but guess what? You're going to overcome trouble because I am with you. Actually, that scripture used to mystify, mystify me for years because Jesus seemed to be saying, you're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And I used to think to myself, well, that's okay for you, but what about me? But you see what he's saying? I, 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 you're it. My, I'm your life. I'm your life. If I've overcome the world, you've overcome the world. And that's not something in the future. That's a done deal. That's a done deal. So we want them to grow up out of the old covenant mindset of waiting for God into the new covenant mindset of being with God so that they're no longer tossed back and forth by every new wave of doctrine or scheme of man or church growth program or something that communicates to them a mere earthly view, an earthly vision of the church, of themselves. As long as believers' minds, their thoughts are set on earthly things, then their highest ambition is to see bigger churches. But the more our minds are set in the heavenly realms, the more we begin to think the thoughts of God, the more we begin to see that God always had a higher ambition than bigger churches, bigger Christians. Bigger Christians. 
So what we're saying this morning is that there is literally a world of difference between speaking to someone according to their natural appearance, performance, their earthly life, and speaking to them according to how they look from heaven, speaking by the Spirit. Now, you may say, well, listen, no offense, Phelan, you know, but all this business about speaking from heaven and having, it sounds a wee bit, it's sort of head in the clouds, really, you know. Look, there's a lot of practical needs out there. There's a lot of stuff to be done, you know. Uh, there's so many needs. I mean, I mean, how many people are we supposed to be uh, speaking this heavenly language to, you know? I mean, how many people literally can we actually think the thoughts of God over? I mean, uh, who are we supposed to regard no longer after the flesh? How many of these people are we supposed to regard according to heaven and no longer after the flesh? Let me allow the Apostle Paul to answer that question from 2 Corinthians 5. He said this, He died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. If we are to regard no one after the flesh, then we are to regard everyone after the Spirit. Did you get that? If we are to regard no one after the flesh, then we are to regard everyone after the Spirit. Why did the pub crowd gather around Jesus? Because he was speaking to them by the Spirit of God. He was speaking life over them. He was saying effectively, I know the way you see yourselves. That's not who you are. Let me tell you the way I see you. Let me tell you the way heaven sees you. And he was simply repeating what he had heard from heaven. Seeing people from heaven's perspective, thinking God's thoughts about them, and speaking to them as he would is not just one part of the church's ministry. It is our entire ministry. For surely there can be no part of our ministry that is not life-giving. And yet our ministry can only be life-giving if the words of the Spirit are spoken, the words of the mind of Christ, how he thinks are spoken over people. For Jesus said, my words are spirits and they are life. So let me practice some more of this speaking foolish over you this morning. Living from an earthly perspective in the church meant that for many years, many of us in the church, in Christ, saw ourselves as a people on our way to eternal life, a people on our way to victory. But from a heavenly perspective, we can no longer have to regard ourselves in that way. Because you see, what heaven can see is that Christ has sat down and you and I have sat down in him. Because for all who are in Christ, we are not on our way to eternal life. We have eternal life. And we're not on our way to victory. We have victory. And you know, when a church transcends in their thinking from one to the other, you'll find that people will not begin to pray for victory. They'll start to pray from victory there is an amazing difference. Now, we've been talking all morning about seeing our lives from a heaven's perspective, and that is the highest view anyone can have of their life. That's why we should be never ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God gives people a higher name, a higher view of people than the world can ever give people. For all our family and friends who are running into the world looking for worth, looking for significance, looking for love, looking to make a name for themselves, Nobody will give them a higher name than God the Father. Because the name he gives to that world is worth God dying for. Worth God being with. I mean, who can give them a higher name than that? That is such a high name. I remember saying once uh, to our folk, you know, even if we became, if I became a billionaire, <laughs> praise the Lord, God... <laughs> God would not be happy with me settling for the name billionaire because that's too low for the son of God. Why would you settle for that identity when the identity that God gives us is something so much higher? So to this generation, a generation that mostly believes themselves to be an accident of evolution, the gospel has never sounded more foolish. It's never sounded more foolish. But that should not be a problem because from heaven's perspective, all of heaven can see that God has not changed. He's still a God who's pleased to save men and women through the foolishness of the message preached. We're not preaching a foolish enough message. Let me say something else that sounds foolish, foolish enough to be of the Spirit. Because the earthly conversation or language of the modern church is so rooted in old covenant thinking, much of the church spends their lives praying and waiting for God to do something new. 
And we love that scripture at the beginning of every year, don't we? See, I'm doing a new thing. See, it springs up within you. Any day now, any day now. The problem with that is the gospel is not see God is about to do a new thing. The gospel is see God has done a new thing. And church, you are the new thing that God has done. There's nothing newer on the face of the earth. God wants us to see the new thing. Yes, have a look at yourself through my eyes. See, in fact, that you are eternally new. You're an entirely new creation. And God is so satisfied with you and I that he has sat down. Church, God has no need to do anything new, for in Christ you are eternally new and entirely new. So with an old covenant mindset, the gospel sounds like, wait for it, God's about to do something new, but he needs your help to finish it, so work harder. But with a new covenant mindset, we begin to see what heaven sees. The gospel is not wait for it. The gospel is go for it. The gospel is not God is about to do a new thing. It is God has done a new thing. The gospel is not God needs you to finish the work he began. It is God's work is a finished work. All that needs to be done to bring any man or woman into union with God has been done. The only work that God requires or asks of a man is to believe in his finished work. And he even gives us the grace to do that through the message, the foolishness of the message. So in light of that finished work, the gospel message is not work harder, it's sing louder. Which is why each of the three parables in Luke 15, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, they all end with the same exhortation from the Father. Will you not rejoice with me? Come on, sing with me, dance with me. For what was lost has been found. Praise God. What was dead has been brought to life. So in each generation, the elder brother church, the earthly-minded church, the old covenant language speaking church has worked and waited and worked and waited for God to respond to all their work. And in each generation, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the loving Father has gone out to the elder brother church, standing there in all his self-righteousness and in all his disappointment that he never got more for his labors. And when the father went out to the elder brother, I often think that as he came out of the house, the door would have opened and the sound of music and dancing and laughter would have got louder. To preach the new covenant message, the fullest message that flies in the face of religion and everything religion holds dear, is to preach that righteousness and sanctification are not from us to God by our doing. They are from God to us by his doing. Righteousness and sanctification are from God to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness from God, who became to us sanctification from God, who became to us redemption from God. So to preach that message on the earth is like opening the door to the Father's house, opening the door to heaven and letting people hear that heaven so sees Christ's work as finished and sufficient for every need in this earth that today the sound of heaven is a sound of music and dancing, the sound of victory. Praise God. It's the most amazing thing, isn't it? Because the view of our lives from heaven is the view of a finished work, what heaven can see is that Christ has sat down because what he's done is sufficient for every need on the face of the earth. What a foolish message that is. When you look at the earth, see all the needs of the earth from morning to night, from east to west. Look at the needs of the earth and you're going to preach a gospel message that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago was more than sufficient to meet every need. Yeah. Yeah. That's speaking foolish. That's the language of heaven. But all of us here today, because we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, we want to be sure we're ministering uh, the gospel of grace, the gift of Christ. The Apostle Paul, in describing the gospel to the Romans, you know, he said this, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That's how he described it. But if you remember, he said something else just before that. He said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he use the word ashamed? I believe because there were people who thought he should be ashamed because what he was saying was so foolish. Is that not the reason why we don't like to say foolish things? Because we're afraid of being ashamed. 
And therefore, as we study together and discuss together and pray together, what is the new covenant message? What is the gospel? I've simply presented to you this morning one simple test of what we are teaching, what we're preaching, if it's the same gospel that Paul preached. And the test is this. Does it sound foolish enough to be the gospel? This generation of the church has more earthly resources, more information, more experience of how to do church than any other generation before it. In the West, especially right now, we have resources are being put so much into the way we do church. Have you noticed that? You know, the, the buildings, the structure of the meetings, the culture of the meetings, leadership structures, church building models, you know. Last week I saw a, a post on Facebook. It was for an advertisement for a church resource, and it said this, how to build your church through holding conferences. Now, I am not critical of conferences. We're having one ourselves. This is a, lo- <laughs> is a lovely conference. We're having a conference in River City next month. I would encourage you to come. But there was something yet about that, how to build your church through holding conferences that really my spirit objected to. And um, I think, you know, that when it says how to build church, probably the context of that is how to get more numbers in and get more finance in, isn't that right? But there's something about that phrase, how to build your church through holding conferences. And I trust that maybe now your spirit as well will witness with me when I say that uh, my objection to that is it wasn't foolish enough. That's not a foolish enough way to build the church. It's too low a vision of the church of God because that sort of idea could have come from the earth. There's lots of earthly organizations that build themselves by holding conferences. But we are more, surely, than an earthly organization. We are a heavenly organism grown from heavenly seed, the very thoughts of God planted in us through the very words of God. So we should become a little bit more uh, aware of, of not becoming so obsessed with bearing the fruit of more numbers that we're happy to start planting into the body anything that promises us growth. Let me tell you a story. And this, I hope, is an anecdotal story. <coughs> I trust it is. There was a pastor in Africa, and he got married, and himself and his wife were very happy, and they longed to have children. And as the months turned into years, no children came. And they prayed and they fasted and their friends prayed and fasted and the church prayed and fasted, but there was no children. One spring, the pastor had to go into the bush for an eight-week evangelistic campaign. He was gone from home for eight weeks. On the day he arrived back, he met his wife and she was rejoicing. She had some great news, praise God. Guess what the news was? That's right, I'm pregnant. I've just come from the hospital and I've seen a scan with a beautiful six-week-old baby. And the pastor said, hang on a minute. I've been gone for eight weeks. And we have a, well, that means it can't be my baby. And his wife said, oh, you're missing the point. The important thing was that I bear fruit. That was the important thing. And the pastor said, wrong. The most important thing was that we bear fruit. We bear fruit. In all our obsession with growing church, let us never settle for growing a church for him when we're supposed to grow as a church of him. Life to God is not singular. It is found in communion and manifested in the conversation of that communion. No matter how big a church looks from the earth's perspective, if the fruit of the Spirit is not growing in that church, if the communion of heaven is not being seen, and the conversation of heaven is not being heard, then from heaven's perspective, that church is not growing. Now, there's a lot of emphasis being put, and as I'm closing, just to say this, um, and I see it as well, on the quality of our ministry, and many in the church are promoting as a key to seeing more people join the church, that we do everything, again, is how we do it, that we do everything with excellence, okay? Now, I have nothing against excellence, but I just think the Holy Spirit wants to remind us that he could have inspired Paul to write that God was well pleased through the excellence of the way the message was preached to save those who believe, but he didn't say that. He said he was well pleased through the foolishness of the message, It's the message. It's the message. 
Are they hearing what God is saying or are they hearing just what the earth is saying? To God, life is not singular. It is found in communion and it manifests through the conversation of that communion. So to speak the words of heaven on the earth, we have to be in on the conversation, in on the communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's the foolish gospel. That is precisely the table, precisely the communion, the conversation that man has been invited to sit down and participate in through faith in Christ. The gospel of God's grace is that invitation to sit and remain under the river of life, the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, the extraordinary, outrageous, amazing things that God says over us. The gospel of God's grace is the heavenly language that still causes something like scales, the scales of religion, to fall from men's eyes so they can see God as he truly is. The God who has given us everything, not because of what we have done, but because of who he is. For if he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things so church, ministers of the new covenant, let us keep speaking outrageously gracious, generous things over this generation that they may be saying of Christ's body what they said of Jesus. How can you say such things as that over such people as those? That's why the pub crowd came to him. How can you, church, say such extraordinary things as that over such ordinary people as those. And we can reply because for the first time we're hearing, hearing extraordinary things that heaven is saying over these people. You know, on that day when Saul of Tarsus had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to Ananias. Remember that disciple Ananias? And he said, Ananias, there's a man called Saul. I think Ananias probably would have stopped at that point saying, I've heard enough. <laughs> I want you to go to this man, Saul. Ah, Lord, hang on a minute. You haven't got the update. <laughs> See this man, Saul, he's killing Christians. No, this man, Saul, has had a dream. And in the dream, he's seen you. Ananias was asked to go and speak absolutely extraordinary words over a man that to the eyes of the earth was nothing like Ananias was going to say over him, even in Saul's own eyes. You know, this city and this nation is full of Saul's and they are just waiting for the Ananiases to begin to hear the extraordinary things that God is speaking right now from the heaven over this nation and over these people. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. We're going to just wait for the Lord for a few minutes as we begun so we walk in thanksgiving I'm just going to speak and declare over us just what the Lord is doing that he is ascending the mind of his church he's rising us up to think from heaven's perspective and Father I just thank you today for every person here and I thank you Lord just for your beautiful language the language called foolish the language from heaven. Thank you, Lord, that this language is pouring out of heaven right now. Extraordinary things are being said over this nation. Extraordinary things are being said over these people. Extraordinary things are being said over this city. Over the things that are not. Over the foolish things. Over the things that look broken. Over the things that men have despised. Heaven is saying extraordinary things. And Father, we just declare you are opening our ears by your gospel. You are teaching us the language of heaven. You are teaching us the language of communion. That you raised us up. That we would see the world from your perspective. The perspective of the finished work. That what you have done is enough for every person we meet for the rest of our lives. So that we can look at every person we meet and regard them no longer by their history, by the things they have done or haven't done. But we can hear from you concerning these people and we can prophesy. 
And we thank you, Lord, that the testimony of your gospel, the testimony of Jesus, is the spur of the prophecy. So I thank you, Lord, that prophecy in the church will become our everyday language. The things we say over each other, the things we say when we're by ourselves, the things we say when we're not standing in the church building, these things will be prophecy because we will speak so supernaturally of what seems so obvious to us that what Christ did was enough. So, Lord, we're, we're learning to speak from the end because in you, Lord, there is the end and the beginning. You're the Alpha and the Omega. We can speak from victory. We're living in this dimension. We're living in this Cronus time, but we can speak from Kairos time. We can speak from heaven. And Lord, in this age, you're rising your church up to speak from a heavenly perspective that the very thoughts of heaven, the very words of heaven would be heard on the face of the earth and that your prayer would be answered. Let thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, Lord, I just speak against every lie in operation in every soul in this place. Father, I just know that the, the enemy would love us to believe there's a better day coming as long as we never believe today's the day. Lord, in your timing, there only is now. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let us rise up in our thinking to see that the party has begun in heaven. It began a long time ago. It began a long time ago. And what will destroy the works of the enemy is the truth. Is the truth that he has finished. Because you finished him, Lord. So Father, let us speak from that perspective. That we will see a river of life flowing out of the temple. Flowing out of the temple and flowing to this nation and to the nations. And everywhere this river of life goes, everywhere this gospel goes, that Christ is now our life. There will be fruit on both banks. There will be healing. There will be healing. There will be restoration. There will be people coming into the right mind. Now we think there are people in this nation who are out of their minds with fear, out of their minds with hatred, out of their minds with despair. They're naked, running in the place of death. But Lord, when we speak to them, when you speak in our lives, through our lives, then they will be seated clothed and in their right minds and all the earth will be amazed that the peace of heaven has come to the earth thank you lord thank you lord thank you lord thank you lord we just agree with what you're doing right now praise you jesus thank you father let's just stand your feet and just ask sam just to continue to lead us and, and just begin to allow the holy spirit just to quicken to us whatever he's saying right now through the words that have been spoken bless you father just start to give thanks again. Just start from that place of thanksgiving. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Let your spirit flow in this place, Lord. Bless you, Father. Change mindsets. Teach us that language, Lord. Teach us to speak as you're speaking today, Lord. Bless you, Father. Praise you, Jesus.